Welcome to the We Are From Dust podcast, episode 8, Art on Fire. My name is Yomi Ayeni. I am the chief instigator at We Are From Dust. We are an art non-profit organisation dedicated to the proliferation of large-scale participatory and interactive art in public places and spaces. Today, I'm in conversation with the filmmakers Sophia Swire and Jonathan Clark, hot on the heels of the release of their new film, Burning Man, Art on Fire. Shot in 2018 and the first film in recent history to fully document the trials and tribulations of making art in one of the most inhospitable places on earth. Sophia, Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jans. How familiar were you with the event in itself before you had this crazy idea to come out and hoist everything that you had into a place that's trying to kill all your equipment. Well, I first went to the playa in 2007 and I was quite an experienced burner by 2018, which was when we filmed uh, Burning Man Art on Fire. Um, I must have been about maybe six or seven times, but I came from Afghanistan where I'd been um, working as an international development expert and also filming as a hobby uh, Pieces for, art, for, pieces for Trans Wild Sports, which is a Channel 4 um, outlet for wild sports events. And so I had had an enormous amount of experience of shooting in desert and extreme conditions. Yeah, so I first came to Burning Man in 2007. And back then I was living in Montreal, Canada. The accent comes from New Zealand, by the way. And I had a friend, when I used to live in London, I had a friend that wrote for Lonely Planet. His name's James Bainbridge. He's in the back of a lot of Lonely Planet books. And he was like, we're talking about Burning Man. He's like, hey, man, let's go. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I could, I could, you know, work something with Lonely Planet. And then I went down as the photographer and he went down as the writer. And that was in 2007. And we'd heard about Burning Man years before. I'd heard about it in the 90s. And I'd seen something in the National Geographic. And as soon as I saw it, it was like, I'm going there. And so 2007 comes around we run down there and that's what I run into you, Yoms, in the, in the media mecca because you're quite a visually distinguishable person. I apologize. And one of the few <laughs> British people on there. <laughs> and not just a few British. I think um, I've been to Burning Man more than most black people on the planet. There's a lot of British people there, isn't there? Yes, there are quite a few of us out there because... Yeah. Uh, we we live a rather we're rather anally retentive in so many different ways, and we come out to the deserts to, mm-hmm. I say, let my hair down. So much has been documented, shared, and filmed, and all the rest about Burning Man over the years. Mm-hmm. Now, in every single one of those documentaries, there are things that we know, there are things that we don't know. That uh, you have a bit of exposition, then there are things we thought we knew that but we didn't know that are shown to us, and we think, whoa, that's amazing. Now. With Art on Fire, what were you mining that hadn't been shown? What we really wanted to do, which was different with this film, I think, to any prior Burning Man documentaries, was to show how Burning Man art and artists were becoming a movement in their own right for the first time recognised by the international community. And the reason that we filmed it in 2018 was because um, it was the same year as the Smithsonian Museum's Renwick art gallery uh, museum piece which was uh, called no spectators um, and that for the first time put burning man on the map as far as art was concerned and i think um, we wanted the film to really 
dive into how Burning Man art was unique, how it was um, extraordinary um, and different from any art movement that had come before it. Sophia comes in from one way, which is you know, the bigger picture, the history, that, that story side. And I come in from the purely visual side and interesting characters. So when I'm coming in, she's got the bigger picture going on. She's doing a lot of dialogue with the artists, the major artists, the Burning Man organization. And I'm just looking for a lot of really interesting faces and who's really wacko, who's got a lot of stories to share. And I'm just, I'm just following them with my camera. And uh, so, we, we, there's, so we had this kind of really good synergy going on there with Sophia, Jerry and I, where we, we both have our different um, sort of agendas of what, what's going on, but we're all kind of meeting in the middle. So for example, one of the characters in the movie is, is, is Tommy, uh, the young gentleman that, that dies of a heart attack and he's Flash's young son. I was in Gurlach, I was in Gurlach. <clears throat> he walks into the cafe, which is outside Burning Man. And the first thing I thought was, I want this man in my movie. <laughs> no matter what it is, we've got to find a way to have him in. And in the meantime, there's all the art and the temple going on in the desert. And we did find a way to bring in Tommy because through Flash. And so I'm following Flash around and I said to Flash, Flash, let's do something with you and, and Tommy. And so we, we bring him in through the radio show. And so, so we weave in these very, very interesting characters throughout the story of, of, of the creating of, of all these pieces of art, which is kind of a good synergy. Sophia, how different was it being behind the camera of an event that you, that you had helped grow by being a participant over, over the years? Well, in a way, I helped grow this more than I had done in previous years because we weren't allowed to just sort of point and shoot. We were dragged into actually building the wretched thing. So whenever we had any downtime, which was very rarely, um, we had pneumatic drills shoved into our hands, hard hats put on our head, and we were told to get to work. And, and so am, I right, am, I, am I right in saying the da that damn thing was Galaxia, was a temple? Is that what I called it? Yeah. <laughs> that beautiful, beautiful, amazing, the most beautiful building I've ever seen in my entire life, actually, truly. Um, but yes, we were put to work 24-7. Um, so I didn't really have the feeling of being an outsider. I was a participant in, in 2018 more than I ever had been. Having said that, how it differed from previous events was that, um, you know, obviously uh, as the producer, I needed to remain fully cognizant of all my senses at all times, which meant that I didn't touch um, even a beer during the six weeks or so that we were in the desert. And I was sober and well-rested and, and on it, basically, 24-7. And, of course, Burning Man is also about letting go, isn't it? So um, I, I wasn't able to let go in any sense of the word in 2018. I'm looking forward to going back and letting go another time. Well, I mean, just, just to say, this, this, this podcast has been recorded using um, an application where I can actually see both of you and uh, I'm just staring at Sophia so when she said she didn't have a beer. There's this really mischievous grin and smile going on over there. I mean, you did not have a beer. Not one. Not one. And Jonathan can actually, um, you know, he can, he can vouch for me. What, did you have uh, a scotch? No, I, I didn't touch. I, not a naughty thing touched my lips throughout the entire Time, I swear to God, and I was in bed when the boys went out partying at night. I don't know how they did it. 
They're working. I wasn't out partying. I was sleeping. <laughs> well, sometimes they went out partying. Let's just put it that way. I'm going to talk out of school. The, yes, they are. Some of the boys, yeah. Sometimes some of the boys went out partying. I was in bed. And um, sometimes when they were too tired to get up, I grabbed the cameras and went out and, and shot. And I was just uh, very grateful for autofocus. Um, <laughs> I mean, what, what, yeah. so what, what sort of obstacles did you, you run into? I mean, we, we can look at this on two different levels. There's the, the level of the technology, which, I'm going to, which I am going to be asking about in terms of the kit, because I know there are colossal, enormous obstacles regarding the kit but then uh, having 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 been on both sides be it in front of the behind the camera but also working within the media team who I'm sure facilitated some of the interactions that you had trying to track down a, 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 a someone who you planned to meet and film is almost impossible I mean flash for instance mm -hmm is a scarlet pimpernel you can never freaking find the man well we couldn't find anybody much of the time to be honest which is it's just as well that this wasn't a scripted documentary because we what what we got what was in front of us and that wasn't all, always what we had originally planned and we've we very nearly missed some absolutely key scenes for instance um obviously the the memorial scene inside the temple galaxia for for, for Tommy, we very nearly missed it, didn't we, Jonathan? Were, were you actually there? I, I was there. I filmed it. <laughs> but we, we, we had missing the Salman at the time because there was just everybody, no one had cell phones. And then it was like, there was rumor Flash was going to be turning up at the you, temple. You, we just weren't too sure about the time. You are not allowed to have cell phones on the flyer. <laughs> no, but no, nobody had walkie-talkies. And walkie-talkie channels get, all get jammed out anyway. But the sound man was not. I remember there was a crisis yeah. of some sort. So obviously yeah. one of the challenges that you have at Burning Man is that there's a terrible wind blowing and, and, and there's a huge amount of, of sound at, at night in particular. And uh, because we did this, uh, we bootstrapped this entire production and we were working really on, on voluntary help from everybody, including Jonathan. We had a volunteer sound person who... Uh, our first sound person, it, 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 it transpired, wasn't really a sound person at all. They just said they were. So um, we, we realized very quickly that we needed professional sound support. And we found ourselves having to advertise from the desert with no mobile telephones and very intermittent Wi-Fi connectivity, almost none, for a sound person to come, to drop everything they were doing and to come to the desert and ideally to bring their very valuable equipment and ideally to volunteer for it. And we were trying to do this from the RV after an 18 hour working day. Anyway, we, we eventually did find, find a sound person and I drove to Reno to pick him up and bring him back. But that was already a few days into the shoot. And, and sometimes the sound person wasn't available because they were exhausted or, or maybe they were hungry. I remember there was a certain amount of, um, do you call it mangry when you're hangry, hungry? Hang, at hangry. Hangry. Okay, well, he was mangry because he was hangry and he was a man. So he was a mangry, hangry chap. And, and very quickly, I found myself as the producer being sort of running around, giving him food all the time. And, and when, it, when it was lunchtime, he demanded his hour off for lunch. And we, he had to go back to, the temp, to, back to the camp and eat his lunch. And the rest of us were out slogging, regardless of 
lunch and tea and dinner and everything else. And that, I think that was why he, he wasn't there. Is that right, Jonathan? Uh, I'm not too sure why he wasn't there. There was just miscommunication going on at the end of it. And, and it was really hard to get a hold of people when you needed them right there. So I, I was, I'm a little bit in the blind to what was really going on behind the scenes there. But all I know is that I was the only one at the temple with Jerry. And, but we, we got Flash with, with Tommy and it was a very powerful scene. I mean, I've known, I've known about Tommy and I was, I was in London when uh, the news broke about his, him passing away. And that was, uh, it was a big blow, as, as was with a lot of the people who, who were familiar with the, the Gerlach sort of family. And yeah. it was beautifully co- conveyed. And I'm so glad that you were able to, to catch the initial radio broadcast with yeah. him. And, you know, he, he was such, a, such an amazing soul. Talking to friends who watched the film before I did, there weren't many dry eyes in rooms on, on seeing that. You've, you've taken a totally different approach, and that is what, is what makes the film so special. And... How hard was it for you to keep track of your story? And, and this is on two levels, because not only do you have to track people, but there's a continuity aspect to it. And this goes across both fields. I guess, John, uh, Jonathan, this is more your gig? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so Jerry and Sophia were holding sort of the grand reins of the whole, the general storyline about getting this piece of art documented, getting that piece of art documented, cover this artist, cover that artist. And, and it was literally, they set up a container for me to work in. And so my job was within that container was just to find the most interesting people, the most interesting characters, any form of conflict. So that was all part of the synergy going on. Um, but back to Tommy, um, he, was, he, was the, he, was the, he was basically the, the mascot of Gerlach and, and every town has got its sort of oddball. I've lived in Montreal and I, I always, Every town I've lived in, I've always tried to make friends of the oddballs because it's all, they always have the most fascinating stories. And a lot of people are kind of, they're a bit too scared to talk to the oddballs because they're not of their reality. But if you go inside their world, they have the most interesting, vibrant world. So Tommy, he's, you know, slow, as you know, to put it in a different way. But, you know, I got inside his house. I walked around and see how it, um, he was into knives. He had watched TV the whole day. And, and, and through all these, these weird things about the characters, you really start to fall in love with them. So back in New Zealand, I have a brother who has a, has a learning disability and I'm like his big brother. Um, if you were to sort of, you know, put a movie description to it, it's a bit like Rain Man. And then when I saw Flash and I saw that Tommy was Flash's son, I immediately had an affinity. And I thought there is something really beautiful here, how Flash is this, you know, wizard of the plier but he looks after this young or this 64 year old young man, but he's a boy inside at the same time. And there was just a gem there, a gem that we could all learn from. And so, so for example, that was spinning from the story that went, that took a different arc. And, and I had to, since I said to Sophia, we've got to get this guy, Tommy, and she's thinking, who's Tommy, you know, but it, it all, it all came full circle. And in the meantime, I had to get back to the temple and start for more of the construction going on, you know, interviewing Arthur, and that's yeah. where Sophia was with me. I loved the fact yeah. that you were able to to honour and to document his fascination with 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 wireless and broadcast uh, medium, but also his interaction with the world outside that he uses the this particular 
medium to, to connect with, for instance, mm -hmm. looking at the traffic reports and the weather reports. Yeah. You know, those, those were things that were very precious to him uh, as a person. And yeah. I, I, as a storyteller myself, I, I like stepping into that fantastical world, which gives you the opportunity to kind of drop the, the, the hang-ups and the sack of potatoes that you have on your shoulders and actually play. Mm. And that was more or less what mm. came across beautifully. And I thought it was mm. nicely, nicely done. Um, it's probably one, for me, one of the most memorable parts of, of the story because it just showed human, humanity and human nature mm -hmm. in, in so, yeah. so many different ways. And also mm. it just go into, to a certain degree meant that you were coming in and out of the playa. I mean, was that yeah. allowed? Because I know we normally don't let media drive off site. <laughs> Well, this was, before the Burning, this was before Burning Man opened. And so uh -huh. we could go into Gulak and for supplies. Sophia had to, you know, do some emails. Uh, we actually had one or, one or two nights out of it just to, just to recoup. It's just a way as a breathing space to get away from, from the hot, dusty desert. And yeah. Sophia was doing some washing out there too. So dirty socks, was it, Sophia? I had to take care of the, the stinky boys in the RV. It wasn't my role, but I chose to do it for purposes of survival. I think I'm going to camp with you next time. <laughs> 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 I mean, how, how, was, how was keeping track of the story for you? Because as producer, you are at the helm. It is your responsibility to hold all the respective strands and tie them together. Well, it's interesting you should ask, Joms, because the, 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 the original story idea was to capture the major art and artists on the playa of that year and to set it in the context of the history of art. And we had decided to, to tell the story through three major characters, Arthur Mamumani, the architect of the Temple Galaxia, Andrew Johnston, the Scottish-born designer behind the man base that year, Haggis, a.k.a. Haggis, and thirdly, Kate Roudenbush, who's the frightfully glamorous and fun uh, photographer turned sculptress and, and dear friend and mentoree of Larry Harvey. These were our three major characters. And then the idea was that, that there would be some supporting roles from some other characters that we met on the playa. But these were the three major stories that we wanted to interweave, and we really wanted to capture these characters before the playa, during the playa, and, and, and we were considering doing it after the playa. So when we got out there, um, we had very little access to the man-based build. Um, as you know, uh, Media Mecca can be very stringent in some of its um, rules. Sorry. And Our main job, and, and, and I'll get hold over the coals with this, our main job is to fuck about with the media to make them realise that Burning Man is not the real world. So that we, we facilitate, but at the same time, we're there to have fun too. So it's nothing personal. Right, okay. Well, anyway... Um, so, of course, Burning Man Media was hugely supportive from the beginning to the end, and I'm very, very grateful to the individuals, particularly Megan and Dom, who've been absolutely outstanding in supporting this from the beginning, and it wouldn't have happened without them. Having said that, actually, on the playa, <laughs> um, we were told in advance that we would be able to film um, the man base build. But when, when we had got out there, we found out that as it was a sort of internal Burning Man project, that there was some resistance to the idea. 
So we naturally were already embedded with the Galaxia Temple crew. And because we were put to work when we weren't pointing and shooting, we became very enmeshed in the story to the extent that when Jerry eventually arrived, which was already, I think, three weeks into the shoot, he was actually quite concerned that we'd gone native. And, and just, just to interject here quickly, Jerry was the director. Jerry was the director, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So, so Jerry uh, arrived. He, 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 Jer I was very, very grateful when Jerry joined this team. He came, he came in quite late because it hadn't occurred to me that he would be open to directing it. And when I found out that he was going to be, I believe, in Arizona on a dude ranch with our former prime minister, David Cameron, and was open to the idea of joining us in the desert, I was delighted, of course. But the, the, the brief I had given him beforehand was to cover the art and artist behind Burning Man with these three major characters. By the time he arrived in the desert, we considered ourselves Galaxia temple builders as well as filmmakers. Um, and he was quite concerned that we might have lost our objectivity. And therefore, he, he took, well, we, we ended up having two, two teams, didn't we, Jonathan? You were the main director of photography and the main camera operator. But then we had like a sort of a B team. And so the B team was left behind in Galaxia and the A team went off and, and shot all of this new content. So, so by the time Jerry got out there, I was so convinced that Galaxia in itself was such a strong story that I was less interested in some of the peripheral stories. But Jerry was very determined that it should have more of a Robert Altman shortcuts type approach with many different stories being interwoven. And um, in the end, as director, it, it was his, his cut. So the, the, the 94 minute piece that we have now on Kindling and that's going to be going live on Amazon and uh, across all the other TVOD platforms, that cut is very much his vision of how the film should be. So in the end, you know, ultimately as the director and as the person overseeing the edit, he was the one that shaped all of these stories into the homogenous uh, storyline that it is today. Was the role of producer and director and cameraman, were they all interchangeable at some point? I think to an extent, you know, when you're a small team and you're all doing it on a voluntary basis. I mean, we just chuck things at each other all the time. Mm. I mean, Jonathan is such a brilliant director of photography, but he could actually direct the film himself, to be honest with you. He's a very, very capable person. Also as a freelancer, he's, he's perfectly capable of doing every aspect of this job. He's a so, burner. Of course he is. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And on the very rare occasions when he expired from exhaustion, I would grab the camera and go out and, and shoot. But that was very, very rare occasion. Um, and then occasionally Jerry would also pick up the camera and shoot. So I don't think Jonathan went to Gerlach to wash my socks at any point. But apart from that, I would say that the roles were fairly interchangeable. What would you say, Jonathan? Yeah, we all had to sort of bleed into each other at some, at some sense. Like, okay, like you put this wireless mic on this person. I'll show you how to wire it up. Uh, pass me this camera. Let's have two cameras going on. We all had to sort of chop and change a little bit. Burning Man always offers a role for skill exchange. And that is, what, that is what carries many, so many of the art projects on, where you have people who start working on one thing and after a couple of years end up starting their own project. So it's not, it's not, it's not unusual. And that's part of the reason for the question, because I kind of felt in a place like that, being asked to grab a camera and shoot something, you need to be ready 
to just grab something and capture almost instantly. And uh, and on on the sock front, um, I tend to go and buy two pairs of socks per day, and I have a bag that I put them in to wash when I'm done on the plier. So my shopping always has two pairs of various parts of uh, of an attire of my 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 outfit per day, so that I don't run out of shorts or socks yep. or things like that being on the other side of this whole thing and this mainly could relate to both of you how did you find us as a community now that you were out filming again on the playa because we have this whole no spectator thing and i know there's certain camps that are extremely camera shy i mean as a start jonathan have things changed for you i started burning man shooting in, in stills and then i ended up shooting in video and, you know, usually people's receptivity to the camera is always generally pretty open. But there's over the last, uh, I guess, 12, 12 years, due to the advent of social media, people have a different attitude to, with regards to privacy. So when I first came in 2007, everybody was cool having the camera with you uh, in their face. And by 2009, um, everybody was so paranoid about Facebook and what they were doing with the data. So even there's just suddenly you're getting a bit of blowback. I would just have a camera, I think in 2009, around me and people would just start screaming at me and I wasn't taking photos of people. And that was in 2009. And then after it kind of eased off a bit because everybody got used to the whole Facebook and everybody's images now being on the internet. And then so that's not so much of a problem anymore. And then now that I've got these you know, cameras all hanging from my, my body, I, I look like a quote unquote professional. So it's like, oh, he's a professional. He must know what he's doing. And so he'll get a good photo of me, you know? So you're surrounded by sparkle ponies. <laughs> well, yeah, sparkle ponies. They, 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 they will sometimes hunt you down and just to get some photos, you know? Um, but, but, you know, body language speaks everything. You'll know straight up if someone wants their photo taken or not. You know, the body language is the biggest communicator. You know? And a smile can get you so many yeses. So, <laughs> so you were smiling a lot then. <laughs> oh yeah, you're friendly, open, you're friendly. People are very, very open. And then some once in a while, someone just goes, "Nah, yeah, no worries." When we first went to shoot Galaxia, we we had some pushback from some of the volunteers who who chose not to be on camera. And I think it was a combination of us being there and embedded in the crew and watching us helping with the washing up and the drying, and also most importantly being seen to help out on the actual build itself, we won over their trust. And also I think that, that we, we made a point of interviewing almost all the volunteers. And I think because they realized that this was a, quite a sort of in-depth, sensitive and serious film, we won their trust and they gradually opened up to us. But it wasn't a slam dunk at all from the start. Yeah. It was quite a lot of suspicious suspicion i think around us initially but we, we we were able to win their trust yeah it takes time what would you say your main challenges were with putting this project together well i probably wouldn't necessarily do it again <laughs> <laughs> sorry <laughs> so somebody reached out to me from i think it was burning man media and said would you please join the team next year and um and i i said uh, i politely declined but the only, the only thing that would motivate me to go back and shoot again at Burning Man would be if I could film a virtual reality, a 3D version, and to give 
non-burners the opportunity to be fully immersed in the Burning Man experience. In fact, I had wanted to do a, a, a 360 version of, of Art on Fire, but it was way too complicated. As you know, the cameras get pretty dusted up and destroyed. And I believe that the 360 uh, VR film equipment is much more sensitive and perhaps not quite as sophisticated in, in, in complex lighting conditions. So my next question is the kit. <laughs> How yeah. did that survive? Uh, so uh, where do I, I can start from the very beginning of <laughs> um, how, I ch how I chose the right kits. I get a lot of questions from photographers, mostly photographers saying, oh, I'm going there. How do I protect my camera? What camera should I bring? So this is for them. And this is probably more for the filmmakers on the type of camera that we chose. We chose a couple of cameras. So basically before the start of it, I realized, well, my thing was I didn't want to carry a lot of weight. Okay, that was, that was number one. So because when you've got cameras on you, man, you, you just start to weigh down during the day. We just uh, no weight. We needed to run onboard sound through XLR. So it's like, okay. And then we needed the camera to be somewhat uh, quite um, uh, weather resistant. Okay, because, you know. And then so I've had a, uh, like a, when I was shooting photos, I had a Canon 5D Mark IV on the, on the plier. In a dust storm, it got completely blocked up. I mean, I could still use it, but I'd spend $1,500 in cleaning it when I took it out of the plier. When I'm doing day-to-day -day work outside the Burning Man, I'm on the Sony FS7, right? And then, yep. but then for, the, for the plier, that was not going to work because it's too heavy and it will get a lot of dust through it and a lot of things could run wrong with the camera in that environment. But Sony make a cheaper and more affordable camera called the Sony FS5. I can literally hold it with a little pinky finger and, um, and, and it won't, I can hang up from my body and it won't weigh my body down. And uh, it seems to be pretty well, it seems to be pretty weather sealed and it could run onboard sounds. And I needed 10 bit, I needed 10 bit video, which means I needed, because the lighting conditions were so extreme, it was very hard for me to gauge an exposure out there. So I needed 10 bit video, which means we could work it in post, like to save an image if it was overexposed or underexposed. And the Sony FS5 could shoot 10 bits and uh, I love 4K, but it, could, it couldn't shoot 10 bit 4K. So we shot 10 bit in HD and it could do all the slow motions. I could punch in on the camera, I could crop in. So most of it was shot in Sony FS5 with like a one, with a 24, 105 uh, Canon lens on it. That was most of it. And then when I was doing all the shots of the, the temple burning down, I was on a um, like a 100 to 400 millimeter lens, and nice. on. So I was just switching between the, the two lenses: 24 105, 100 to 400, and then sometimes 16 to 35, where I need to be very, very tight and intimate with people. Um, so that's technically that's how it worked. Uh, so cleaning it. Um, <clears throat> so you clean every day after the end of the shoot. So we had a couple of cameras going. We had a, a one backup, so we bring the cameras back. I had a whole cleaning station of spray can air, uh, little wipes that you rip open the packet and you clean the lenses down. I was just all sorts of electronic cleansers and wipes and all this kind of stuff. So it was just, it was a big job in itself, cleaning everything down the lenses every single day. And that took like maybe three quarters of an hour to clean all that stuff up while I'm downloading all the, the footage, which took maybe an hour. <laughs> So there was DIT, which is digital intermediate, which means you've got to download the footage. You've got to pull in everybody's data from anybody that was flying a drone or other cameras. Or Sophia would meet a few other cameramen on the plier and she'd talk to them and she'd get some data from them. And so we're bringing all this data and that had to be rigorously catalogued. You were logging on the plier? Well, I had to just, well, I wasn't logging. I was dropping it into the folders, 
cataloging the folders, date, you know, it was all logging through through folder through a folder. I had a folder system set up. And we filled up uh, two shooting HD footage, two times four terabyte hard drives as the, <laughs> as, the, as the main data. And then from those two, so it was like close to eight terabytes of data. And then from that, because we keeping the footage safe was paramount number one, you know, you don't want to lose the data. Then I had to, to what's called striping it, mirror the data onto one set of hard drives for Sophia, mirror the data on one set of hard drives to, to Jerry. So I'm doing all this, cleaning the cameras, mirroring, and um, and then and then trying to prep for the next day. And then by then it's like you know 11 o'clock at night, and I've got to get up at, in five hours. Oh so my nice. god! So it was you, like you, every you, you, single day, every single day. You were party central, man. <laughs> yeah, party central on the cameras. So, uh, so I nearly, I nearly didn't make Burning Man. So while I, I just got to Burning Man, my, my father fell gravely ill in the hospital. He, he nearly died. So I was, there was a couple of days it was very, very touch and go. And so I, I made the decision to stick it out. And then so <clears throat> I finished um, Burning Man. I, I fly back to New Zealand. That's my homeland. And next thing you know, I'm sitting in the hospital. You know, my father's lying in the hospital bed for six weeks. And I'm like sitting there next to him, just uh, locking all the footage <laughs> while just keeping him, keeping him company during the day. And then that took about, I think, about a month to log the footage. And all I had to do was just send... Uh, I initially logged it all in Final Cut 10. I don't know what it was cut in at the end, but I sent... Basically, I logged it all in Final Cut 10, brought it all in, and then I just sent Sophia and Jerry a Final Cut 10 file so they could just open up all the content and you could see it was all organized. So that was, that was, that was a huge task in itself. Anyone thinking of going to Burning Man and doing a film, <laughs> should, yeah. what, what we'll actually probably do is I'm going to take this whole chunk that you just explained, and I'm going to edit it just to give them an insight into into how it is. Because I, I same thing, camera got to protect it because I shot on one camera, all the tapes I couldn't back up. But when we were done, there was no there was no logging, there was no going through. I just made sure that's fine. Images look good. Don't want to run it through the camera. Take the tape out, store it in a Ziploc bag, never go back. That was before uh, before SD cards, yes, right? <laughs> absolutely, before SD cards. What was this in the nineties? Yes, this was in ninety-eight. Nine, what camera was that shot on back then? It was a Sony, Sony okay. VX thousand. Like, was it a big one that you had on your shoulder, or was something pretty small and manageable? It was. It was. It was. It was medium sized. Okay. It's, I think that's what um, Spike Lee shot a couple of things on it and similar. So it, was, it was a favorite of MTV at the time. You, How you, much would you... that sell for now? Yes, I know, 50 quid. 10 bucks? <laughs> Being a now, museum. It is a museum piece. Now, we also lost Larry. And having been to the desert many a time, I kind of wonder, how, how, how did it feel? Was it any different? Um, we had hoped to interview Larry, obviously, as, as one of the main founders of Burning Man. And he had been at the launch of the No Spectators exhibition at the Renwick Gallery, to which we were invited. And we were hoping to capture him on film, um, I think it was March in 2018. Yep. He left early, um, and so we sadly lost that opportunity. And of course, he left early because he was feeling unwell. 
So we were deeply shocked and saddened by his, his, his death, his shocking death. And of course that changed so much for, for all the artists in particular, as well as um, his dear friends. And Kate Roudenbush, for instance, um, whom I had met at the Smithsonian exhibition, who was a very, very compelling character, told us at the Smithsonian that she wasn't planning to participate in Burning Man 2018. She decided to take a year off. She was just going to enjoy herself. But when her mentor and dear friend Larry died, she changed her mind and decided to create this beautiful piece, Passage Home in His Memory, which is one of the, the three main stories in our, in our film. And then, of course, um, the, the morning at the temple took on a whole new level of meaning. And then Andrew Johnston, who was a dear friend of Larry Harvey's as well. This was the last man base that he had um, helped to design. And uh, as a result of which, our main characters, I mean, Andrew in particular, was in tears watching the, his man burn at the end because he realized that this was the last time he was going to collaborate with Larry, who was a, a towering figure in the history of Burning Man. Indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, I, it, was, it, it was the year I took off. I, I didn't go, go uh, couldn't go for, for various reasons. And it was a bit of a loss. And I, I, I guess um, I saw the film last night or this morning at about midnight one o'clock when I, I sat in bed and decided to watch it I can only say I witnessed the 2018 burn through your film because I blocked the whole year out totally because it was just too painful to, to, to take in for me was the year any different for you? It was different for me because first of all I was working very very hard and I decided to remain 100% sober from the beginning until the end of the film. So, um, you know, you, you go in as an observer as opposed to a participant, although we did participate to, to a certain extent. Um, it is a different dynamic. For me, it was different also because I'd never got as intimately involved in the art as I did that year. I, I it only ever sort of scooted around. You, you never have enough time on the playa to see all the art. So I'd never really done a deep dive into the art before. And so for me, in that sense, it was revelatory, not just as an observer, but also as a, as a participant. I really was blown away by um, Jennifer Reiser, who is the treasurer of Burning Man and author of the book, Burning Man Art on Fire, who actually inspired the film in the first place. She took us on art tours, which we were able to film, Unfortunately, most of it ended up on the cutting room floor because we could have done a five-part series with the amount of content that we, we recorded. So yes, it was different because for me, it was, it was a, a truly deep dive into the art. And Jonathan? Yeah, for me, um, it was more of a deeper dive into the characters. So I've met, I guess, Larry a couple of times in passing uh, in 2007. And then in 2017, I was, I was in a camp uh, called Psychic Taxi and he came past the bar and I had a chat with him so I met him in passing a couple of times and then it was meeting all his friends who were closest to him you know Andrew, Kate, Flash and Jerry James having some very very deep conversations about their history what it was like on the beach with him I mean Flash is just I mean boy he's got a lot of a lot of crazy stories you know what I mean that haven't made it to the camera you know just a lot of uh, a lot of conversations just about you know the good old days and what it was like 
I got to experience Burning Man through those, through those lenses, through the characters uh, of how it was with, with Larry. And then on the outside, just me looking, okay, it was just the desert, the same, you know, the same art going on. And then going inside the temple, hey, there's a few pictures hanging around, but there was you know, no mausoleum to Larry. There was none of that kind of stuff. And according to Andrew, he would have had a heart attack if he knew there was a mausoleum going on there to him. Um, but no, so, so difference for me, it was, it was through his, his closest friends. It was really seeing what the impact that he had. The film... How has the reaction been for you, as in the public reaction? Because I'm sure when you make something like that, you're not quite certain how the public are going to react to it. It's been out for about a week now. And I've seen the most amazing reviews. But how has that hit you? And were you expecting the sort of feedback that you have seen and heard so far? Sophia? Well, I've been blown away by the reception to the film, to be honest, Yams. Um, you know, when you're intimately attached to the evolution of something like this, which in a way is an artwork in itself, it's a Burning Man artwork, a labor of love. Um, it's hard to really anticipate what people's reaction is going to be. So the almost unanimous outpouring of approval and gratitude has been really mind blowing. Um, and so, I mean, obviously we expected some interest from the Burning Man community, especially because this year the event has been cancelled. So we were expecting um, a certain amount of interest and enthusiasm from the Burner community. But what I certainly didn't anticipate was the almost unanimous approval and good reviews in the media. In the British media, for instance, we had two full pages in the, in the Times newspaper review section last weekend. And uh, we've been reviewed in, in The Guardian and, and a huge number of other um, very prestigious newspapers, most of which have given the film four out of five stars, which is extraordinary. So it's been very widely reviewed, very well received. And for a small film to be made on such a low budget, um, to have this kind of reception, especially as a documentary as well, is almost unprecedented. So I would say, completely unexpected, unanimous outpouring of approval and joy. And, and I'm, I'm deeply grateful and, and delightfully surprised by it. And Jonathan? Uh, yeah, ditto to what Sophia said. Um, I, I'm looking at it now, I'm somewhat detached from the whole, the whole thing. You know, it was two years has passed and I've done a lot of different creative projects since. And so I kind of look at it as like somebody else shot it. And I, and I read the reviews like oh, somebody else made it. That's kind of how my sort of emotional attachment is. But I've been showing it to friends that have really no idea about Burning Man. I've done four sitting downs with people that really are kind of blind to it. And I watched their reaction. And those are the, those are the people who I, I, I'm, I'm more interested in about uh, how they feel about it because they get something from it because you know, we're so immersed in that Burning Man community, we can sort of become a bit myopic in that, in that, in that world. It's when you show it to somebody outside, how do they respond to it? How do they respond to the characters? How do they respond to the art? And a lot, they've all said, I had no idea it was like that. You know, and that was really cool. And for me, that, that, gives, me, um, that gives me some sort of solace because when I go to Burning Man to shoot, I'm there to, to capture as much as I can and, 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 to, and to sift through the data and just show the world how I see it, 
And so many people um, through seeing my photos and through a lot of other photographers or filmmakers have gone to Burning Man because they've seen work what, that, what we've done. And I like reaching those people. Um, the, the, the comments that have been pouring out on Instagram and Facebook, we have an Instagram page, uh, Burning Man Art on Fire. I'm just going to read one of them that's just come through two seconds ago um, to our latest post. I have to say, absolutely brilliant movie. Nice to see all these behind the scenes footage. That scene with the sunrise and silhouette of Larry as kind of resurrection moment reminded me of my father who passed away a couple of days ago and gave me tears. Beautiful, beautiful. I, I think you've done, yeah. you've, done, you've done the event proud. I was quite gobsmacked to see that almost three quarters of the film was dedicated to the build before the gate opened, you know, and I thought that that was just phenomenal. You got into the heart of what really makes, you know, Burning Man tick, you know, not, not the fanfare, not the art cars, not the fancy dresses, not the theme camps, but this is how a city is built. And I thought that was phenomenal. No one has actually done that. And we've had big productions out in the past that have come out and they've come out with celebrities and they've come out with various people and say, yes, we're going to tell the story of art. Uh, you nailed it beautifully. And I think that is highly, highly commendable on all counts. I mean, put it this way, I worked in the media team for a long time. I saw a lot of the stuff that we approved and a lot of the stuff that was shot, but no one has quite got in. And one of the things I tend to tell a lot of filmmakers who come out is get some local connection, get some connection to your story before you set foot on the plier. Start your pre-filming, get to know the story, get to, get to build this story world so you actually know what you're getting. Unfortunately, most of them come out with that myopic sort of thing that we're going to the desert and everything is going to be provided. It goes to show that you were embedded within certain groups that gave you the access and you won the trust for them to open up and to make things happen. I'm very, very, very proud to say we're going to be screening the film in London um, during Burn Week um, at the Mandrake Hotel. Uh, it may be the only sit-down screening that would have happened in the UK. Uh, we've got a private cinema, um, going to have 20 seats. It's going to be socially distanced. Uh, and, and we're going to give people a, a complimentary cocktail to watch it. People are paying you know, to, to see this thing. It's a great film, and I sincerely hope awards come your way. Um, I know you're going to do festivals, and you've got the edits for the screening and all the rest of this stuff. But it's more than a delight to know that someone finally has been able to tell the real story of Burning Man and how the city is built. Jonathan, so wow. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. That's, Thank quite, you a that's quite a compliment. <laughs> quite a eulogy. <laughs> can you send us that clip of the recording, which we can then post out on all our social media? Because never has anyone said anything more wonderful in, in my entire life. It's a beautiful, it is a beautiful effort. I, I, I can remember when the gate opened or when the temple opened, I actually stopped the film and looked at the time. You're kidding, you've gone this far? 
before the gate opened. I mean, I've been... Was it I, about 45 minutes yeah, when yeah, the gate opened? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You have been listening to the We Are From Dust podcast. Links to all the places where you can watch the new film Burning Man, Art on Fire, are listed on our website, wearefromdust.org. We Are From Dust is a non-profit organisation and you can support our mission to bring the transformative power of interactive arts to public spaces by making an online donation. We Are From Dust is fiscally sponsored by the Sierra Art Foundation.